You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Captain Rich Witt, a Navy SEAL officer who's the Director of Strategy and Policy at Navy Special Warfare Command. Rich, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you're our first SEAL. Yeah. So as opposed to the traditional starting question of how'd you wind up in the Army, I gotta change it. How'd you wind up in the Navy? And I, I grew up in... Uh just a suburb right outside of Chicago. And I didn't think I would spend 20 plus years in the Navy like I have now, but I probably owe being in the Navy to my brother. So I'm the youngest of four. I have two older sisters and an older brother. And my brother, when he was in middle school, ended up breaking his arm really badly and multiple breaks. And he had to do a lot of rehab. So the doctor at the time, said to him he should probably try swimming to do rehabilitation. So he started doing swimming as he got into high school, joined the swim team, and he was four years ahead of me, a senior when I was a, a freshman, got me to join the swim team, and, and I was, was horrible. So I would go in with him in the mornings and swim in a lane kind of all by myself, but that got me into swimming, got me into playing water polo, and I did those things when I transitioned to, to college. And eventually, I think those things kind of led me into to getting into the Navy. So it wasn't Top Gun, it wasn't Charlie Sheen and Navy SEALs, it was your brother? It was not. It was definitely, uh, I would owe a lot of it to, to my brother. What was your commissioning pipeline? I was commissioned through OCS or Officer Candidate School, and it goes back to, to being in college. So I started at University of Michigan, and I went in to do a degree in chemical engineering. And as I was doing that, I was also on the water polo team. It was a, a club team, but we were really good team. We had a bunch of guys on the team that couldn't necessarily make the, the swim team. They had Olympians on the team, and the, the swim team was amazing. We get a lot of guys that would come over and, and try water polo. And we had a few guys on the team that were thinking about potentially joining the military. Uh, one guy was interested in being a SEAL. Another guy was interested in maybe doing EOD. So uh, through them, I got to meet some other SEALs 
and I met a mentor because I was struggling, struggling in school. Like I said, I was doing chemical engineering and I was not doing very well my first and, and second year. I met a mentor who was a guide to the student athletes and he had been doing a lot of research with uh, the SEAL teams at the time. He had done previous research with Top Gun pilots and with folks going through the astronaut program. So through him, I was able to meet a few other SEALs. And once I met a few SEALs and got to go see the training, I was, I was basically hooked. That decided really, you know, I want to go try to do this. I, I don't want to go work for a chemical company, you know, making aspirin for the rest of my life. I want to try to pursue being a SEAL. And that kind of started me down the path to, to really start training to be a SEAL. Officer candidate school for the Navy is held in Rhode Island, or did you go down into Florida? That At that point, it was down in, in Florida. Okay. So officer candidate school was, was based out of Pensacola. After graduating from there, where did you go? So first, just getting into officer candidate school, I want to talk about that for a minute. We really competitive to become a, a SEAL officer. And at the time, I think there were maybe eight to 10 positions to, to go there. So at the time, I'd spent probably two to three years just training before I even turned in my package to, to get to OCS. And through that, I spent a lot of time running with the track team, actually swimming with the women's swim team because the men's team was, was so much, much faster and eventually got me to, to OCS. So finished OCS right at the end of 99 and then transferred to, drove across the country to start BUDS or basic underwater demolition seal training. What was that drive like in your head? Lots of anxiety on the drive. I'd done a lot of preparation, talked about doing two or three years of training to specifically prepare to go to Bud. So I felt like I was physically ready and potentially mentally ready, but you just don't know what you're about to get into. You can do all the training you want, like I said, from running, swimming, taking scuba classes and reading books about the SEAL teams, but you just don't know, I think, until you're, you're actually there. Once you got to Coronado, did you feel that the preparation you'd done before had paid off? Absolutely. Uh, I think I was very well prepared for training itself from a running perspective and a swimming perspective and having some idea of what the training was about. I definitely felt like I was, was prepared. The, uh, the things you can't prepare for are the cold water. It's really hard to physically or mentally prepare yourself for how cold the water is going to be and how cold you're going to get going through training. So I remember my first day with the class I was going to join, which was 229, class 229. And I just wasn't sure if I was in the right place at that point. Um, there were about 120 other people in the class when we started, and you're just not sure if, if you're really ready to, to be in that group. Did you ever finally feel ready? I did. I think after a few weeks in the program, you start to have more and more people dropping out of the program, and you start to kind of find your place. So a lot of that happens in the first few weeks that you're in training. I think at the time... The big test is Hell Week in the first phase of training. 
training's broken down into three phases. First phase, the culmination event, is Hell Week, and we lose a significant portion of the class during during that week. So as you're as you're working through that, you definitely start to to find your place. And I sort of find my place with making friends with the other guys in the class, trying to find my role. I was one of five officers in the class, and I was more junior, and I think I was just trying to, to find my place as, as we were going through it. What was that like being a brand new ensign entering, attempting to enter the special warfare community? That part of, of training is really about trying to find people that are not going to quit, people that are going to work well in a small team, and particularly for ensigns in the Navy, trying to find people that are going to be able to provide leadership, character, and you start to build those things as you're going through through training. And there's definitely situations you're in, you're trying to, again, find your place and, and figure out figure out what decisions you need to make or what element you need to support kind of along the way. You mentioned the other four officers there and that you were junior. Right. Had they all come from the surface warfare community or other areas or were they just, you know, a little bit older than you? Three of them had come from the surface warfare community and they were already lieutenants and they had had been in the Navy for a while. So they were the class leaders and then there was another guy in the class that was an ensign had come out of the Naval Academy, and then there was myself coming out of, of OCS. You make it through Hell Week. What's the second phase like? Second phase is dive phase. So first phase is really mostly about can you work well in a team and you're not going to quit. So it's a kind of a test to see how you fit into the class. Second phase is really about testing you as an individual to some degree to see how you perform under stress. The culminating event there is called pool competency or pool comp, and it's about a 20-minute test where you're underwater on these old scuba rigs that have two hoses. So you have an inhalation hose and an exhalation hose, and the instructors come down over the course of 20 minutes, and they tie your hoses into knots and rip off your face mask, rip off your fins, toss you around. And then you have to solve that problem underwater without air, trying to get air back. You go through three or four different iterations underwater where one time they may tie a knot in your inhalation hose. One point they may tie a knot in your exhalation hose. One point they tie a knot where you can probably get it out and get some air. And then they usually tie a knot they call the whammy knot, which is not supposed to be a problem you can solve. And you have to make that decision underwater to take your tanks off, set them on the ground or the base of the pool, and then request permission to, to go to the surface and then go through that whole procedure of surfacing correctly. So it's a lot of pressure, a lot of individual decision making, and then following the procedures as you're you're going through that test. All while attempting to maintain this Jacques Cousteau looking dive rig. Absolutely. While you're you're trying to piece it back together, you're trying to put it on, make sure your your straps aren't twisted and everything is in order. Otherwise you'll you'll fail the test. After pool comp, phase three, where does that take you? So phase three is demo weapons and tactics. That phase 
the main thing you're doing is four or five weeks at San Clemente Island where you're learning how to shoot, move, communicate, do basic demolition. There's a, a little bit of um, land navigation that you do before then, and we do that about 45 minutes outside of San Diego. Then when you're done with that, the whole class goes out to San Clemente Island or SCI, and you're not sleeping a lot, but the class is really focused on learning how to shoot basic pistol, basic rifle, underwater demolition, and then you put all those pieces together and do some mission planning, field training exercises or FTXs. And the instructors are evaluating you the, the whole time. So not as much attrition. A lot of attrition happens in that first phase during Hell Week. Some attrition happens during the second phase in pool comp. And then in, in third phase, we started with 17 people said at the start my class started with 120 by the time we finished with hell week i think we had 21 we lost a few people in second phase and then third phase we had 17 people and, and one person was dropped for a safety violation from weapons handling you graduate you're a, still an ensign u.s navy seal where do you go so my first assignment was right next door to buds it was at seal team one when i showed up pre 9 11 the SEAL teams are mostly based either on the East Coast or the West Coast. The West Coast are odd number teams, so one, three, five. I don't think there was a seven at the time. So I started it at SEAL Team 1, which was the first SEAL team, and it was really a strict team. There were some folks that had been around just at the tail end of Vietnam, and they were really continuing to teach those lessons from Vietnam preparation, doing things the right way, sometimes taking the hard road, trying to do things where maybe the enemy won't suspect you're going to be. So if you're cold and you're wet and you're miserable doing some type of training evolution, that's where sometimes the enemy can be most vulnerable. So I started my my career there and it was definitely good for me, taught me a lot of the basic SEAL skills. I initially started in a SEAL platoon there with one of my good friends and really just learned how to be a SEAL there. At SEAL Team 1, what was your first assignment? My first assignment was actually to, I wasn't in a platoon yet, I was assigned to go work at an embassy overseas. When you show up at a SEAL team at the time, we didn't show up with our Trident. We had gone through some advanced training, but we had the first six months at a team where you're on probation. You've got to earn your Trident at the team by going through a board, communications, medical, weapons, and tactics, and then an actual board with your CO, your XO, and I think command senior enlisted. So the platoon I was supposed to go into at the start, they were actually deployed and I was sent on a three or four month trip to U.S. Embassy in Sri Lanka. It's my first time overseas. And at the time there was a program to send SEALs into kind of high threat environments to, to learn languages. So really eye-opening to me to work in an embassy, be overseas, and start to figure out what it means to be a SEAL. How were you able to conduct the training you needed to pass your boards if you're at a diplomatic facility? I did that training before I deployed. So they didn't want to deploy anybody until they had actually earned their trident. So I spent the first six or eight months working to, to earn my trident. And actually, I ended up failing the board the first time. 
I probably was spending maybe too much time preparing for that trip and I had to go back and take the communications test again. A few weeks later, after spending a bunch of time going back into communications and and learning that piece of it again. What was your reaction when they came in and told you you didn't pass the board? I think you know when you probably didn't pass. There were some things that I should have spent more time learning, and I just knew I needed to dig in, spend more time learning my trade. After your assignment in Sri Lanka, where'd your career take you? So then I went back to SEAL Team 1, joined up with my platoon that had been deployed, and we were going through a workup to to go on deployment, and that's when when 9-11 happened. We were actually doing some diving training, and we had been up most of the night doing that training, and I'd been sleeping. My uh, now wife, but girlfriend at the time, had been at work, and she called and woke me up, said, you need to turn on the TV something's happening. So 9-11 happens during that first platoon. We're not sure what's going to happen at that point. We all start preparing to potentially deploy sooner. And at the time, we continued training and ended up deploying to the Middle East to be a crisis response element. After that crisis response mission, right, the U.S. is starting its march into war towards Iraq. Did SEAL Team 1 and did you play a role in that? I did. So the team, the SEAL teams in general, started to contribute to doing land-based operations. And most of my deployments at that time, mine specifically, were into Iraq. I deployed into Iraq multiple times, did my platoon commander tour in Iraq, and like most other people, conducted several missions, several ground combat missions, and tons of lessons learned going through that. After platoon command time, you're at this point a lieutenant, you know, full O3, or are you a lieutenant commander by now? At that point, I was a lieutenant, but I was pretty close to being an O4, a lieutenant commander. So you've spent about 10 years in the military between, you know, from, from OCS until this point, a fair amount of leadership experience, combat experience. What changed in your career from direct leadership to now probably more of a staff role? So at that point, at the 10-year mark, like you're, you're getting at, we transitioned from a lot more direct combat into, into that staff role. So at that point, I became an executive officer. I'd been an instructor at our BUDS course. And eventually I came back and and took command. So I was able to come back to the same team that I had done my platoon commander tour, which was at SEAL Team 3, and then came back to be in command at SEAL Team 3. You'd been a platoon commander at SEAL Team 3. You now go back as the commanding officer. What was that transition like? And were you interacting with some of the same people that had been there your previous rotation? When I came in as the commanding officer of SEAL Team 3, there really weren't many people in the command that had previously been there. There were a few, and SEAL Team 3 is great. There are people that continually come back. They love the command. They may go and become a instructor at our training detachment, Tradet, and then they'll come back. But frankly, when I came in as a commanding officer, there were only a handful of people that I knew. And of the 200-plus individuals, maybe three or four that I had known previously or worked with previously, and everyone else was new. So much different perspective being the commanding officer to being a platoon commander. 
What was the leadership philosophy or vision that you had for your team? Team itself is great. So leadership philosophy for me was was pretty straightforward. Uh, me personally, three basic principles, want to be a humble leader, want to lead by example, and do the hard work that we know needs to get done. So we're ready for whatever is coming our way. And that was really a lot of the basic principles of SEAL Team 3 at the time. The only additional thing I had as a commanding officer is I wanted to make sure I personally was spending a lot of time with the lieutenants and the senior enlisted, the platoon chiefs, the platoon LPOs, the assistant platoon commanders, as I was the the CO, because I knew there were going to be times potentially on deployment where I was going to have to talk to those people directly and have some type of direct interaction with them. In those conversations you had with your subordinates and, and with those senior enlisted advisors and senior enlisted SEALs, did you get a sense of the professionalism of the unit? Absolutely. One, one thing myself and our senior enlisted uh, command team at, at Team 3 at the time, is we spent a lot of time doing training with the team. And that wasn't necessarily something that we saw as we were coming into the teams. So if a team was going to do platoon IADs, shoot and move drills, we would join up and do the IADs with them. If a platoon was going to do some type of diving training, you know, we would jump in and, and do the training with them. They're going to do some type of tactical ground mobility. We joined up and, and did the training with them. And we set out our schedule to be able to do that with each one of the SEAL platoons as they were going through training. And as you're going through that, you can see how hard everyone's working. You get a good sense of where they're strong, where they're potentially weak, what the different personalities are. And then you can kind of start guiding things from there, understanding that part of each of the SEAL platoons. Did you deploy the team as a whole? We did. So that deployment ended up being and we didn't know it at the time, but it was going to be the last SEAL team to deploy into Iraq. We were preparing for that deployment with the whole team, most of the team to Iraq. It was still split. Part of the team would go to Indo-PACOM, but the bulk of the team went into Iraq. So I was really concerned. There was still the counter-ISIS campaign, and there were still a lot of threats, and I wanted to make sure we had the most prepared most competent SEAL platoons and staff. You deploy the entire team. Were the platoons centrally located with you or did you have them spread out? We were spread out all across the country. So two of my platoons were deployed in northern northern Iraq and worked for a MARSOC, Marine Special Operations element, and then the bulk of my team was in central and, and western Iraq. So I was really concerned with having the team so spread out that each of my platoon commanders, the lieutenants, were ready to go. And we had one particular platoon where the platoon commander and the platoon chief were not getting along, and we could see it coming through training. And we were trying to evaluate how are they potentially going to perform when we put them in this combat environment. When you say not getting along, what do you mean? When we talk to them... They would say things like, we don't necessarily do things outside of work. We communicate well when we're at work, but we just focus on work. And you could definitely tell they didn't have a close personal relationship. For me personally, I probably have three 
really close relationships, if not more, but three central ones within the military. My first one was as a platoon commander with my platoon chief, extremely close relationship with that E7. Second one was as a team CO with the SEA or the command master chief. And then the third one is with my wife. So those three relationships are key or central. So to have a platoon commander that's just not necessarily communicating well is a problem. And we could see it in the training that we're going to. A hard problem would come up and the two were not communicating well and the team just wouldn't perform well. And it was starting to lead to high-risk situations not necessarily getting solved in the best way. What conversations were you having with your command master chief about that in the lead up to the deployment? We were concerned. We wanted to look at that particular platoon and find out how we could improve that platoon. We looked at the platoon commander. We looked at the platoon chief. We sat both of them down separately, the master chief with the platoon chief, myself with the platoon commander. We talked to people that worked for them, got their perspective on things, and then we sat the two of them down at one point during the workup and asked them, is this going to to work out? Are you two going to be able to, to get along? And at that point, they said, they think they're going to be able to get along, but they, they're not sure. And I think at that point, we really knew we probably got to step in here and, and make a change. As a leader, making tough decisions is your job. Right. On the spear, we talk about combat situations. This is the preparation for combat. This is, this is it's not a human resource. It's not an HR problem. But how do you turn to two very experienced professionals, I would imagine, and say, hey, guys, this isn't working out. Right. You can't, you can't start that at the point where you're trying to make a decision about it. So we definitely had to go back and look at and make sure that they were aware of the issues that they were having. So initially it would start with some verbal counseling, then stuff would be written down, and we're really evaluating, particularly in the SEAL teams and probably any really good military organization, you're continuously getting evaluated. And the evaluations that were coming in from other outside trainers as well was this particular platoon was having communications issues. And we could see it when we'd run them through some type of realistic training. An example would be the platoon is doing training in an urban environment and they get asked to deal with a scenario in training and have to change the plan that they initially went in with. Maybe set up a HLZ separate from a place that they had originally tried to to establish a, a Hilo landing zone. And this particular platoon just would not be able to get to that particular step. And we would see in the training scenarios where multiple people would get injured, they would now be dealing with down men, and running through that scenario just wasn't playing out well for them. We'd put them back into another training scenario like it. And again, the platoon was starting to make some improvements, but not enough where I think we felt comfortable in a combat scenario, they would thrive. Did you and your command master chief feel that you were watching just gears grinding? Yes. We want to see that they can figure this out amongst themselves and sort out a clear path to being successful. And we could see at the time that the two individuals just were not able to to work it out. You eventually have to make a hard decision. How did you come to that decision and how did you deliver the news? That's a great question. So we realized at that point we have to, we're looking at 
removing a platoon commander and potentially replacing them with another individual. So to do that, I have to go to my boss and explain who's a 06, the group commodore, group one commodore, and explain to him and the master chief there, this is the situation we have, this is what we're thinking, these are all the things that we've done. We've been pre-briefing them on this, so it wasn't a surprise, it wasn't the first time, explaining to them what the issue was. And then at that point, we had to go back to them to look for a replacement. So this whole process takes weeks to play through. And to get to, I think, your second part of your question, it's a hard thing to, as a commanding officer, to have to sit down with one of your platoon commanders and potentially remove them. And at that point, the officer I was removing was actually a really sharp junior officer, knew multiple languages, was was really a smart guy, just wasn't necessarily meant to be a platoon commander of an element on the ground. So I have to sit down and explain that to him, look at these are the issues you weren't able to work out, these are potential options that I have for you, what you may want to go do, do you want to stay in the community, do you want to do something else. I think there's other things you can have value within naval social warfare. So having that conversation, having thought through all of that beforehand, before I'm actually sitting down with that lieutenant. Once you made that change, did you see a shift in the platoon? Absolutely. So we were able to bring in a platoon commander from another team that had already deployed, and he was their top-ranked platoon commander, and he was screening for another program, but he had about a year, an outstanding platoon commander that already had a bunch of experience doing that, and we could see immediate changes in the platoon. And it's just a real testament to how impactful that 03 platoon commander can be on the functions of the team. They had a much better relationship between the platoon commander, the platoon chief, communication improved dramatically, and the platoon just started firing on all cylinders. The new platoon leader shows up, or platoon commander shows up, changes the culture. What was the feedback you got from your command master chief about the decision that you had made, but you had made as a team? Right. The feedback we got from the platoon itself was they were much happier with the new leader. It wasn't like they didn't like the old leader as a person. They still respected him. But from an operational perspective, they were glad that we made the decision because I think a lot of times leaders don't make those decisions and you continue to try to work with some of the individuals you have and make the changes and make the tweaks. And I think they were extremely supportive that we actually made the decision and made the change. Once you deployed with the new platoon leader and the new platoon structure in place, how did that play out? So this ended up being a really impactful decision and I didn't know it at the time. But this particular platoon ended up being in a very intense firefight on deployment. And I've gone back several times in my mind trying to think through, what if we hadn't made this decision? And what if this platoon was still on the battlefield having communications issues between the platoon commander, the platoon SEA, the RTO, so the radio men, the LPO, just the whole group wasn't necessarily functioning as well as it could have. And it really played out 
when this platoon got into this this firefight. You're watching that firefight from a command operations center or a command post somewhere. Did you at some point turn to your command master chief and go, man, we made the right call? I, I was watching this from an operations center. We had uh, surveillance platforms up that were watching the operation go down. But like I said at the start, my master chief and I really tried to engage with the platoons. And in this particular case, the mass chief was actually on the ground with the platoon because we would swap off operations. And you know, I would try to go on an operation with the guys and he would try to go on an operation with the guys. So he was actually on the ground at this, in this firefight at the time. So I wasn't able to, to talk to him at the time. But I was thinking as he was out there trying to figure out you know, what support that this platoon needed. And in this particular scenario, the platoon had been planning a direct action raid. They'd been doing intelligence collection, and they had been looking at a particular place to go to conduct this operation where it was really hard to drive into. There were lots of different Iraqi army checkpoints, and they decided they were going to have to do a helo offset and foot patrol in with their partner force, provide some type of isolation of the target. And as they were doing all this planning, there was an Iraqi army outpost that was relatively close to the area that they were going. So they decided they were going to deconflict with that outpost as they approached the target. And that's where things started to go go pretty badly for them. You know the platoon's done the preparation work, the intelligence preparation of the battlefield. They've got a cohesive plan, it sounds like. When things started to move sideways, what was going through your head? When things started to go sideways, this goes back to me trying to figure out what support this platoon needs and that as a staff, we're being prepared to provide that level of support and not trying to be overbearing to the element on the ground. I think a lot of times as leaders, we want to inject ourselves directly into that problem. And I was really talking to my staff at the time, like, let's figure out how we solve this problem. We know they're in a very intense firefight. And what ended up happening is, as they were approaching to deconflict with this army checkpoint, through a series of events like we always have happen when something like this goes wrong, the army checkpoint thought that there were ISIS elements that were approaching them and not a coalition element. There were Iraqi, our element was embedded with an Iraqi soft element, and the soft element was primarily in the lead, and we're behind them kind of directing the different assets that they needed. As the two Iraqis that were with us approached this army checkpoint, the army checkpoint started to fire on them and ended up getting into a very intense firefight against our element for about 15 to 20 minutes. One of the most intense firefights I've seen from an Iraqi army checkpoint, firing heavy weapons from an elevated position, firing RPGs at our element on the ground. And we could hear the communications coming across from the platoon commander that was on the ground. He was on a SATCOM radio providing updates as he was going through the uh, whole scenario. What, uh, what he didn't know at the time is one of his interpreters had gone with the two Iraqis 
that were trying to do the deconfliction. So what he didn't know and he was trying to relay back to us was really trying to get that blue force picture. You know, where was, in that case, the interpreter that was with him? And he was trying to solve that problem. We were trying to solve the problem of making sure that there was a medevac established, trying to do deconfliction with the Iraqi army, trying to make sure that there were the appropriate air assets overhead that could support them without jumping too far into the problem to control air assets or get too down into the weeds with with the platoon commander. So you're watching a green on blue scenario unfold. Has the initial intent of the mission, that initial raid, just been totally shifted out of the window at this point? No, I think it was still still on the table, but we needed to see what the results of this gun battle were going to be. And the, the tough decision that the platoon commander really had to make and that we were watching unfold is our element ended up being pinned down behind a low-level berm. So maybe a foot high, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower. But they were behind cover, but not a whole lot. They did not end up receiving any direct casualties from from the firefight, but at the time they didn't know where their interpreter was. So they couldn't provide any close air support onto the target building that was shooting at them. We had we had an AC-130 overhead while we were conducting the operation, and that AC-130 was talking directly to our Joint Tactical Air Controller, JTAC, on the ground. So they're trying to deconflict what they can do to try to let this element know that it's coalition forces and not an enemy force approaching them. So they started to conduct fires where they wanted to do fires 300 meters from the target building that was shooting at them. And they did that, but the Iraqi army continued firing on them. They conducted fires a little bit closer, about 150 meters, and the Iraqi element continued firing on them. They couldn't actually put fires on the building because they didn't know exactly where their interpreter was at the time. So making that hard decision for the platoon commander, he knew he didn't want all of his guys to get injured or killed, but he didn't know where exactly one person was within his formation. And I'm assuming he didn't want to kill friendly forces even though they were attempting actively to kill him. And that's the hard, hard, hard decision that he had to make. And I think it was one of the most well-executed, you know, missions after the, the firefight started because as that platoon commander, he's the one as a ground force commander that has to make that decision. I can't make that decision for him as a CO watching from an operations center. I think he would have been absolutely justified to put fires on that building. But like you said, he would have knowingly been killing um, Iraqi security forces. And he didn't, didn't want to do that, but he's in that dilemma of, I've got to do something to protect my force. I've got to stop the firing that's going on. And at this point, after about eight to 10 minutes of of back and forth, I was able to get on the phone with the platoon commander. So at that point, we ended up using a satellite phone to talk directly to him on the ground to determine, you know, exactly what's the situation, what support does he need, and how can we help him? And really the main thing there that he needed was us to help deconflict with the Iraqi security force element. 
And we had been trying to do that for the last eight to 10 minutes, but we hadn't done a lot of the pre-work to figure out what's the exact way to contact this element, what element back in Baghdad do we have to call to try to deconflict with this element, what local Iraqi command can we call to try to deconflict with them. But it took us some time to, to sort that out. And thankfully, throughout this, they were able to recover their interpreter. They were able to do a medevac. He ended up getting shot through the waist area, ended up surviving, not having the worst injuries. And we were able to medevac him back to our facility and then, and then to Baghdad and then back to the States. But again, I think about how would this have situation played out if we had potentially had you know, a different command element on the ground making some of those decisions. They've evacuated the interpreter. What is, decision does that platoon commander make next? So really this is the amazing part as well where they still have a mission and they went out to conduct a direct action assault with their partner force. So they still had the right resources, they still had minimum force to conduct their mission, and they were able to continue mission at that point. So they completed the medevac, they made sure that that individual was taken care of, and then they refocused their attention to actually conduct the DA. And they went back and, and conducted the assault with the partner force, but at that point, it was a, a dry hole. They weren't able to recover some of the things that they were looking for, but they did complete the mission as as it was assigned. And I think that's also a testament to the leadership that was on the ground. You go out, something's going to happen, no mission goes according to plan, and you have to be able to adjust on the fly, make those hard decisions, request whatever additional resources you need. And if you still have all the right resources, you can continue mission. Not my call, really back to the ground force commander's call. Did he want to call it a night and go back, or did he want to continue mission? In that, in that case, he wanted to continue mission. When you're watching this from the command post and that commander on the ground is making those decisions, what was your thought, and did you provide any input? At this point, I really left that decision up to the ground force commander. I think I probably could have stepped in and said, all right, end of mission, we're, we're coming back. But a big part of what we do for our junior leaders is we put them in these tough spots to make these decisions. We realize we can't be there with them. So at this point, I wanted to make sure he had all the resources he needed and he was capable of, of making the choice. Did he want to Did he want to come back or did he want to complete the mission as originally assigned? The other part here was we, at this point, this was 2019, there was not a lot of combat engagements going on. We were still conducting missions, but this was one of the first times a lot, several of these guys had been under fire. Other people had. So for me, I had seen a bunch of combat like this, so it wasn't unusual to have something like this happen, and you continue mission, and, and you move on. But for others out there, I think it was, it was one of the first times that they had it. So from my perspective, I'm thinking, They've done a medevac. They still have all the resources they need. They're fine to continue mission. And I think that's what the platoon commander was thinking. But for others, I would have been fine if they decided too much has happened. We've gone down too many paths and we're going to end the mission and, and come back. And I wouldn't have judged them any differently if they would have made that decision as well. Asking the hypothetical question, if you had left the original platoon commander in place, do you think he would have made the same decision? 
That's a tough one. That's real speculative. I just don't know if the same type of scenario would have played out. And it's always hard to go back and speculate. What I do know about this particular situation is the communications were really good between the platoon commander and myself. It was good between the platoon commander and his JTAC and his radio men and his senior enlisted. So that part of it, I can be confident, went probably as well as it could have considering the circumstances. You'd said earlier that your command master chief had been out on the ground with them. When when he came back and was talking to you about this mission, did you discuss the leadership change that you had made prior to the deployment? We did talk about it a few weeks later. We didn't talk about it right away. We really wanted to make sure that Everyone that had been out there on the ground knew that we supported them. We supported the decisions they made. We weren't going to go back and necessarily completely second-guess them. There were definitely some things we wanted to dig into and get some lessons learned. What led to this situation happening? And we worked through all those things and changed some things afterwards. And then at some point after, you know, a few weeks after some of that had happened, the Master Chief and I did have that conversation. But a lot of it was... We would go eat almost every meal together. So when we'd sit down and eat lunch or eat dinner, that's when some of these things would come up. Like, what do you think would have happened if if we hadn't done that? You know, we'd have that specific conversation. Leadership ultimately is a human endeavor, right? There's no manual. There's no book that you can read that's going to give you the answer every time. But you've come out of now 20 years of ground combat operations does any of this change? Does any of the leadership change as we look to going back to the sea? No, I I think a lot of the leadership lessons that we had over the last 20 years, so much of it applies to specifically in naval social warfare, the things that we're doing now. So for the last 20 plus years, special operations, we did the work that the nation needed us to do. We did a lot of work in Iraq and Afghanistan Horn of Africa, but now we're really transitioning to, you know, back to more maritime special operations, some things that only we can do. And if you look at a lot of the things that we've done over the last 20 years from, you know, how do we evaluate a network? How do we do human targeting? Now we're just doing that same type of targeting on a system, a different system. But all the leadership pieces of it, having young platoon commanders, young chiefs, E7s, leading petty officers that are willing to do the hard work is really still the group that we need to need to be cultivating and need to be selecting. I look at some of the operations that our, our folks are potentially doing, and when you're doing anything in the water, there's so much uncertainty. There's just dealing with the maritime environment in itself. And some of the the things our folks do with surface and subsurface maritime, it's amazing. And they're spending hours in extremely cold water, 40 degrees and below, five hours, 10 hours or beyond. They're in a complete dark environment without any type of signals or any type of indication exactly what their potential location might be. And just Being in that environment just takes really unique individuals to to be able to perform. You're in 06 now. You've had these 20 years. Looking back, is there advice you would give Ensign Witt? 
Absolutely. It's advice I give to lieutenants or you know, O4s or ensigns. I really say spend a lot of time with your senior enlisted. I don't know if I did that enough as a junior ensign. You know, spending time picking the brain of your command master chief, the E9, you think there's such a gap between you as an ensign and that person, but I tell people go into his office and talk to him. Find out, you know, lessons learned from that guy or find out what you can learn from that individual. Do the same thing with your troop SEA and E8 senior chief. Obviously do the same with the platoon chief. And really just pick their brains because there's such a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience that you have with the senior enlisted. Rich, it's not often we get a chance to get outside of the Army on this podcast, so I want to thank you for bringing the, the Navy's perspective, but bringing Naval Special Warfare to us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.